thank you for coming, being a part of our services here at Ivy Creek. We're so glad that you've come to worship with us on this Memorial Day weekend. And, you know, of course, tomorrow is Memorial Day. It's a day in which we as Americans remember those who have donned the, the uniforms of the United States military, died while they were serving our country so that we might be able to experience and enjoy the freedoms that we have as a people. And, you know, as a, as a result of that, Memorial Day is not so much a day of revelry as it is a day of remembrance. It's a, a day of, of remembering uh, that freedom is not free. It does come with a cost. In fact, the whole purpose of this national holiday really is to remind us that the benefits and the, and the, the, the blessings that we enjoy as a people um, required many to pay that ultimate sacrifice. And it is a day that should cause us to be both humbled and appreciative to those who help secure our freedom by giving their lives. And along those same lines, but to an infinitely greater degree, for Christians, every day should be Memorial Day. Um, it's important that as believers, we remind ourselves every day of the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus Christ paid for us to be able to be set free from the penalty of our sin and so that we might be saved. Jesus Christ died so that we might live. We need to believe that and we need to understand it and we need to, we need to celebrate that and, and because that is the heart of the gospel. So as you celebrate Memorial Day tomorrow and and I hope you will remember those who, who died while serving our country that we might be able to have the freedoms that we have as Americans. I also hope that today and every day that you will ponder afresh and anew the salvation that is yours through Jesus Christ. Let me also take a moment to say this in light of the tragic circumstances that occurred this last week. I hope that you will ponder on, but even more importantly, I hope that you will pray for those families who suffered such awful, terrible, tragic, heartbreaking loss in Texas at that school. There's no way that we're going to get our minds wrapped around such senseless violence as that. It's heartbreaking. The mass casualties of this past week and those earlier in Buffalo, New York, and many of the others that we can go back and recount, they serve as a painful reminder that we live in a sin-cursed and broken world. And as the people of God, we acknowledge with broken hearts that evil exists. We don't stick our heads in the sand and assume that it doesn't or act like it doesn't. Evil does exist. And as the people of God, we acknowledge that. And it is the results of the horrifying effects of the fall that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. And all of creation, which includes the earth and all the inhabitants of the earth, we're all affected by sin and evil. That unfortunately even extends to those inside the church. This past week a report was released that describes and details surrounding practices of sexual abuse and cover-up within various entities within many churches inside the Southern Baptist Convention. And such news is utterly heartbreaking. As a friend of mine put it, we are a broken people and a broken convention of churches. What's required is repentance 
which as we have continued to recognize from Scripture, is a godly sorrow for the grievous sins that have been committed that is also accompanied by turning from those sins and turning to the Lord, embracing Him and embracing His ways as a plan of action for our life. I hope you will join me in praying for that to happen within our convention and among our people. Listen, I don't pretend to stand before you as one who has all the answers for everything that is occurring. There's no way. I'm I'm not smart enough, and I don't know enough to be able to address every single issue that is out there. The heartbreaking and tragic situations and circumstances that occur, I have no answer for, but I do know this. I believe with all my heart that as the people of God, we have hope. In fact, as God's people, we cling to and we offer the world around us hope. In fact, we declare that there is only one reason that evil does not have the last word in this life. It is because of the hope that we have that tells us that evil and sin and death and the devil have ultimately been defeated by what occurred on Calvary's cross. There Christ defeated all of our enemies conclusively, comprehensively, and publicly. And the Scriptures declare that God the Father validated that victory by raising Jesus from the dead. In other words, the resurrection of Christ is the ground for our hope, and it is the assurance of the final and total victory of Christ over evil. Consequently, even though our hearts are grieved by the manifestations of sin and evil, that we all too often witness in this life, we know that ultimately those things do not have the last word. Wars do not have the last word. Tragedy, both that is experienced on the public scale and the tragic events that we experience personally, they do not have the last word. School shootings do not have the last word. Crazed gunmen do not have the last word. Failed leadership and corruption does not have the last word. Rather, by the power of his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our loving Savior and sovereign Lord, will have the last word in this life and the life to come. Therefore, we cling to the hope that is ours through the resurrection of Christ. My prayer is that even as we move forward with broken hearts, we will be encouraged by the good news of the gospel. Nevertheless, we must not be mistaken into believing that the world around us will always follow suit and find hope in the message of the gospel. In fact, when we preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it will often be accompanied by opposition that will sometimes grow into open hostility and even persecution. And that certainly, that certainly was the case for the apostles Peter and John that we will read about in our text this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, would you please take them? Turn with me to the book of Acts once again and to chapter 4. Because this morning we're going to pick up where we left off last week which, in which we are investigating the reality of this man that we looked at last week who, 
who was born lame. He had no ability to walk, and, and he is healed from that through the, through the power of Christ, through faith in his name. And he, became, he was a beggar who had no other options, and yet he was healed completely and comprehensively from, from that lameness and now was jumping up and down and, 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 and giving praise to God inside the temple as a result of Peter and, and John's ministry to him. And certainly, as we noted last week, this was an astounding sign. It was an amazing sign. And as a result, this, this man, he's walking and he's leaping and he's praising God. And, and, and his actions created quite a stir there in the temple. Many people came to see what was going on. Why, why was this man acting the way that he was? I think he had every reason to act the way that he did. He, was, he had been over 40 years old and never been able to walk, never been able to do anything, and suddenly he's given all of the ability to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit working in his life. And so he's excited and he's proud and he's jumping up and down and he's praising God. And as a result, everyone comes and turns their eyes in on, on him as he clings on to Peter and John. And Peter looks at him and says, what you looking at? You're, you're looking at us as if we're the ones that accomplished this healing. And Peter takes that moment to preach an accusatory sermon. He, he exposes for all who were there that, that they had put Jesus Christ, their Messiah, to death, but that God had raised him from the dead. And I want you to know that those events did not go unnoticed by the religious and civic leaders of that day. In fact, they noticed everything that was happening within the temple, and it led to an adversarial showdown. Peter and John are confronted, and they're arrested because of the teaching and the preaching that they were engaging in. And, and what Luke goes on to tell us there at the beginning of Acts chapter 4, we are presented with the power of the Holy Spirit and the boldness that he gives us, just as he did the apostles when we face the furious firepower of the opposition. I want us to read down through verse 31 of Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to go back and pick up the first four verses. So read along with me there in your copy of God's Word. Now, as they spoke, that's Peter and John, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they had taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was evening, already evening. And however, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day, that the rulers and the elders and the scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, they were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has now become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and 
perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they, couldn't, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go out aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot help, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of this earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that the signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you for this day and for the assembling of your people together around your open book that you have communicated directly to us, your, your love letter to us. We read it and we, we are reminded in so many ways of all the wonderful things that you have done in the ages past. Lord, we are also reminded of the things that you are doing right now in our lives, and we know that you are active and that you are, you are alive. You are working in our hearts. Father, we need to know that because oftentimes when we look around us at the things that go on in this world, sometimes it's far off in another place, a country called Ukraine. Sometimes it's in another state like Texas, New York. Sometimes it's in our own churches. We see things that breaks our heart. Lord, we express that our confidence is not in human beings. Our confidence is not in systems. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence, our hope, our trust, our complete, total dependence is upon you. The fact that you came to bear our burden of our sin upon your back. You suffered and died in our place that we might be set free. But not only that you died, but that you rose again, breaking the power of sin, death, and hell. 
Lord, that's where our confidence is, and we declare it this morning. We declare it with broken hearts, but with thankful hearts and expectant hearts. And I ask that you to speak to us through your word today. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us boldness to take and declare this good news and proclaim it loudly and with urgency to those with whom you give us the ability to communicate. So we praise you and we thank you for the salvation that is ours through Jesus. And I ask that you would humbly instruct us this morning from your holy word. I pray that in Christ's name. I have provided you with four hooks that I have given to you there in your outline this morning that we're going to hang our thoughts on as we work our way through this passage. And um, the first one is simply this. In verses 1 through 7 of this text, I believe we see this. We see an intimidating investigation, an intimidating investigation. The intimidation starts really right there in verse 1 where Luke tells us that the priests and the chief of the guard and the Sadducees, they all came upon Peter and John as they taught the crowd. Now, many have noted that that translation is a little too mild for the Greek word that's there. Really, that Greek word there means that they descended upon them. They pounced on them, kind of like a lion would pounce upon its prey. That's really the emphasis of that word and that, that verb that's there. And what had really gotten these, these uh, authorities all worked up, particularly the Sadducees, was the fact that Peter and John were teaching the people. Who are these guys to be out there in the temple teaching these, these people? They weren't trained men. They had not graduated from the, the, the rabbinic schools. They weren't professionals at this. Who are they to assume the roles of teachers of the people? And on temple grounds, nonetheless. And furthermore, it was the subject matter of what they preached and taught that really set the authorities off. Peter and John, as the text tells us there, preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, to the Sadducees in particular, this could not be allowed because according to Sadducean theology, they did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that anything, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. Their, their theology did not allow for such things as that, which is why they were sad, you see. That's, that's how you can always remember that. So they stirred up the priests and the captain of the temple who was who was second only, by the way, to the high priests. And he commanded the whole Jewish temple guard. And together they all descended upon Peter and John because they considered them to be unprofessional men who were preaching an unauthorized message. And since it was late in the day, they arrested the apostles. They put them in jail overnight until they could convene the entire council the next day. But I love this. I love this little part that Luke throws in there. Luke tells us that many who heard the teaching of the apostles believed and that the number of men who came to believe reached about 5,000, which some have even gone on to insinuate that that meant that the church more than doubled in size in that one day. The point Luke makes is simply this. Though they arrested the apostles, they couldn't arrest the gospel. The gospel was still doing what the gospel does. When it is proclaimed boldly and with power, the gospel still goes forth, and it still calls men, women, boys, and girls to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ, and it changes lives. The next day, however, notice, notice how the Jewish authorities continued their intimidation tactic. Luke tells us in verses 5 and 6 that Peter and John were brought before the ruling council of the Sanhedrin that was comprised of the Jewish rulers and elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many who was of the Jewish high family of priests, or the high priest. 
basically anybody and everybody who was somebody in Jerusalem was there. And they made up this group which had only just a couple of months earlier condemned and flogged Jesus and turned him over to be crucified by Pilate. And all of them now are gathered together again and they're seated in a semicircle and they bring Peter and John into the middle. Can you just imagine how intimidating that would be? These are the same ones who had, who had killed his Lord and here Peter and John stood in front of them. So we see the intimidation, and then we read about the interrogation in verse 7. They asked the apostles, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now, in the immediate context, they're wanting to know, who gave you the authority or what power did you tap into that allowed you to raise this lame man up from where he had been laying in order to be able to walk and to jump and to do the things that he's doing? They wanted to know the source of the power that Peter and John had. Now, the apostles had already made it clear as they taught there in the temple, they had made it clear that the, that the power came from none other than the resurrected Christ. The question here is, in light of the intimidating semicircle in which they stood, would they hold to that story? Now that they're here, under the interrogation of all the authorities, would they stick to that? That brings me to the next hook on your outline. We've seen the intimidating interrogation and now we see that it's met with a courageous comeback. A courageous comeback. Once again, let me read. I, I just, you can't improve. Listen, why do we read long passages of Scripture? Because you cannot improve upon Scripture. None of my words are ever going to improve upon that which God through His Holy Spirit has already given us. So listen, listen to how Luke summarizes what Peter says beginning in verse 8. He says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a specific man, not just a general, a specific the Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You remember, what, you remember what Philip said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus Christ of Nazareth came out of there, and he was obviously good. It was by him whom, listen, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man stands here before you whole. Peter was not leaving anything to guess in any question about who it was who was responsible for this man's healing. He goes on and says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I want you to know there's only, there's one word that to me characterizes this courageous comeback by Peter. It's the word boldness. His boldness to stand in front of that intimidating interrogation and to declare what he did. We might ask, well, where did that boldness come from? Well, clearly we're told first and foremost that it came from the Holy Spirit. Luke says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, some might ask, but wasn't Peter filled with the Holy Spirit back in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came at that point? So, so the answer to that is yes, he was. So does that mean then that the Holy Spirit can can unfill us in some way and kind of come and go and depart 
and then come back at his own will? No, that's not what this passage is suggesting to us. As Tony Marita has put it, Luke is saying that the indwelling spirit freshly empowered Peter, which enabled him to preach boldly. Listen, this text is not insinuating that the Spirit ever left Peter after Pentecost and then came back again here in chapter 4. No, the wonderful reality for believers is that God is with us forever. We have the promise of the permanence of the Spirit's indwelling. Nevertheless, as Marita explains, God will often supernaturally fill us with His Spirit to enable us to do His will. In fact, Jesus had promised his disciples that this exact thing would happen. He said about how you, what you should answer or what you should say. Listen, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. do a good thing to somebody who was lame? Why do you bring somebody before you to interrogate them about doing good to someone? When did that become a crime? And then with fresh boldness, Peter goes on to proclaim once again the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I would encourage you to go back and compare what we read there from verses 8 through 12 to the sermon that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 and to the sermon that he preached in Acts chapter 3 because I want you to know the message did not change. He, in every one of those messages, he looked those folks straight in the eye and said, you killed the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But then he also follows that up with this, but God overruled what you did and raised Jesus from the dead. And Peter maintains his emphasis on Jesus, of Jesus Christ's unjust crucifixion and upon his victorious resurrection. And he also does that by referring to Old Testament in the previous sermons. And he shows how these religious leaders unknowingly played into it and fulfilled that prophecy. Specifically, he points to Psalm 118, verse 22, which highlights how God's servant was rejected by the establishment, treated like a a worthless stone that was thrown into a pile to be thrown away and discarded. But by divine decree, Peter highlights how that same stone was lifted up from that pile and raised to become the stone upon which the temple would be built. His point is obvious. Jesus Christ was rejected by the religious and civic establishment and condemned by them to die. Yet God himself had exalted Jesus by raising him from the dead. And he is the stone upon which the new spiritual temple is built. And to quote Tony Marito once more, he says, Peter is emphasizing God's sovereignty and providence in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In response to the religious power's question regarding the authority on which he acted, Peter essentially says, the Messiah whom you beat and humiliated and rejected and killed, yet whom God has raised from the dead, he is my authority. But he didn't stop there. No, Peter turned the, he turned the tables on his interrogators and he threw the question right back at them. 
He put it back in their own lap. J.M. Boyce has written this. He said, Peter, in effect, said, it is not only the lame man who has been healed by the name of Jesus. His name is the only name by which anyone can be healed, including all of you who sit in judgment over me. The reality is no one can find salvation through any other name save for the name of Jesus. His is the only name under heaven given among men by which we might be saved. So all of you, he says, who sit there in smug judgment over me, self-confidence, you need to know that what happened for this lame man is what needs to happen for you. You too must be saved by Jesus. Listen, Peter launched a courageous comeback to those in that intimidating interrogation. And his boldness came from the infilling power of the Holy Spirit, and it came from a conviction that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was true, and it came out of a love for others because he knew that they had no hope apart from Jesus Christ. And let me just say this to you. When you love someone, it calls oftentimes for us to take risks and to seek the well-being of others, even if it requires us to suffer in the process. Peter was willing to take that risk as he stood before that intimidating interrogation and to let them know that their only hope was Jesus Christ. And I would also say that Peter's boldness came from recognizing the exclusivity of the gospel. Listen, if people can be saved by other means other than Jesus, if they can be saved by other, somebody else besides Jesus, then you and I should feel no real compulsion to go into the world and proclaim Christ. There's, there's no urgency to a message that Jesus is a way to be saved. There's no, there's no reason for boldness in proclaiming the message of the gospel. But listen, if truly there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, if, as Jesus claimed of himself, that he is the only way and the only truth and the only life, if there truly, as we read later in Scripture, that, that there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, then the exclusivity of the gospel message must embolden us to proclaim it out of necessity and to proclaim it out of love and to proclaim it out of, out of conviction over its truthfulness and to proclaim it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the intimidating interrogation is met with, with a courageous comeback. And then, interestingly enough, the Sanhedrin responds with, notice the next hook, responds with a weak warning. A weak warning. You know, they, they, they came off with a lot of firepower to begin with to intimidate these apostles. And then they got them there, and notice what happens. According to verse 13, we see that these powerful authorities thought they were going to intimidate these, these Galilean fishermen, but they were wrong. In fact, Luke tells us that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. I love those two words, uneducated and untrained. The uneducated word is, is as a grammatoi in, in Greek. You, get, you hear the word grammar, or grammar in there. It means that they were unlettered men. They were uneducated men. They were not men who had studied a uh, grammatoi. But they were also, they were also these, uh, these men that they described as idiotoi. We get our word idiot from that Greek word. It means untrained, it means unskilled, it means unexperienced. And so these two guys, uh, 
of grammatoi guys who were unlettered and idiotoi, meaning they were unexperienced, they stand before all of these men who would have never said that about themselves, and they speak with boldness and with power. Furthermore, what they began to realize is these men had been with Jesus. You realize Jesus had done an awful lot of healing when he had been in Jerusalem. In fact, many of those who were part of that interrogation, they knew of things that Jesus had done. Many of them had been there firsthand and seen that folks who had been blind could see and people who couldn't speak could now talk and that folks who couldn't walk could now do so because of their encounter with Jesus. And then they realized these two men had been with that man and that was the one that we put to death and now we have some of his disciples standing before us. And what they also had was this man who for over 40 years had lain there, lame, unable to walk. Everybody had seen him. And here he stood before them, jumping up and down and praising God. What were they supposed to do? They've called these two apostles in to rake them over the coals, but how are they going to do that? The story of this man's healing is making its way all throughout every circle in Jerusalem. And so they send these apostles out of the council and they confer among themselves. They say, what are we going to do? That the fact that this miracle has done and is evident to everybody, we can't, we can't hide that. But then verse 17, but so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in his name. Let me ask you, what is the it that they refer to there in verse 17? so that it spreads no further. Well, they couldn't be, they couldn't be talking about the miracle of the, the, the land. They've already said, look, it's spreading throughout Jerusalem. They couldn't, they couldn't keep that from spreading, so that it can't refer to the miracle itself. So what are they referring to? Well, it could be nothing other than the preaching of the gospel, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is the it. They wouldn't even call it by what it is. It's an it. And they didn't want it to spread any further. The members of the Sanhedrin didn't want the message of the gospel to penetrate the hearts and the minds of the people. They were so determined that they decided that they would severely threaten Peter and John not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. In fact, they said, don't even utter his name. Notice how Peter and John respond. And what is another courageous comeback, I might add? They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. In other words, if there is any question with regard to whose authority we're going to submit to, let us make it very clear to you. We will submit to the authority of God over our lives, and we will continue to testify boldly to the things that Jesus Christ has done. Now, I want you to know this was not a declaration that they were not subject to the governing authorities under who they came. These apostles were not free to disobey in every single way. This was not something that says you can't tell us what to do in any matter of life. No, no. God has clearly, though, declared that they must continue to proclaim the good news of Christ even though the government may tell them not to in this particular instance. 
They had a higher authority to whom they would answer, but that does not mean that they were not subject to the laws of the land. They certainly were. But as it pertained to being able to boldly proclaim Jesus, they had a higher authority, and that higher authority was the one that dictated their actions. And then with one more weak warning from the Sanhedrin, Peter and John, they are released. And notice where they go. They go according to verses 23 and 24. They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them so that when they heard that, they raised their voices to God with one accord. And that brings us to the last hook on your outline today. And it's simply this. The church engaged in powerful prayer. They engaged in powerful prayer. Let me point out just a few things about this prayer. First of all, it was a unified prayer. You notice that they, they, they raised their voice to God in one accord. It was a unified prayer. Secondly, it was a prayer that recognized the sovereign power of God. They call him Lord. It's the word also, it's despostes in, in Greek, which literally means sovereign or master. And they also refer to him as the creator God. He's the one who created the sea and everything in it, and the sea and the dry land. Third, notice that this prayer, power was, this, this prayer was solidly based upon the Word of God. It was rooted in Scripture. They quote David there in Psalm 2. Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things and the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and His Christ? They, they quote that there because they take Psalm 2 and they apply it to their current situation. Warren Wiersbe has written this. He says, these early believers applied the message of the psalm to their own issues, identifying the adversaries as, as Herod, Pilate, the Romans, and the Jews. And these enemies had ganged up against Jesus Christ, and they'd crucified him, yet God had raised him from the dead and enthroned him in heaven. And all of this was a part of God's divine plan from the beginning. So there was no need for them to fear. God was in control. And then finally, notice this about this prayer. It was more concerned with the mission than it was with their comfort. Did you catch that? Look at verses 29 and 30 again. He says, now, Lord, look on the threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They didn't ask for protection. Did you notice that? They asked for power. They didn't say, God, keep us from the enemy they said, help us when we encounter the enemy to be bold and to continue to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, when our prayers begin to take the form that these prayers took, we too will begin to pray with power. Notice what happens. Luke tells us that when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God. With boldness. It is that that brings me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning. When we consider this entire passage, we come to this understanding. Rather than responding with timidity and fear when faced with opposition and persecution, the Holy Spirit empowers us to boldly proclaim that Jesus alone saves. You know, I'm reminded of what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. This is the, the final letter that we have of Paul. He knew that his life would soon come to an end. And he writes this letter to his young protege, Timothy. And in the first opening words of that letter, he says this to him, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 
That's precisely what the Spirit gave to these apostles as they faced opposition and persecution. One writer that I read this week said these words, the church of Jesus Christ is a beachhead of light on enemy-occupied territory. What that means is that as the church, we are to hold the ground that we have been given and then we are to penetrate into the enemy-occupied territory with the light of the gospel. We are to carry the light of Jesus Christ into the dark world that is around us. But brothers and sisters, do not be mistaken. When you carry that light, you will encounter opposition. Sometimes you will encounter open hostility. And there are those who are a short plane flight from us here in the United States of America who experience persecution on a regular basis because they lift up the name of Jesus and they boldly proclaim the gospel that comes from this word. Nevertheless, let me just say, we are to be faithful in the proclamation of that good news through the power of the Holy Spirit. We must be clear and compelling as we declare that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And I want you to know this morning, that is the clear message that I want you to take with you as you leave. I appeal to you this morning. Repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And I further appeal to you to humble yourselves before him. And submit your life and your actions to his divine will. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the, the fact that it calls us to boldly go forth as your witnesses. It calls us first and foremost to humble ourselves before you to confess our sins to you, to acknowledge our need of your salvation because there is no one else that can save us. You are not the last ditch effort after we have failed to save ourselves. You are the first place we are to run because we have no hope outside of you, which is why you came to die for us. And Lord, because that is the case and because you have saved us from our sins, and Father, give us the boldness to go out and witness that same good news to others, helping them to understand that you are their only hope as well. And when that time of persecution and opposition and hostility comes, help us to be like Peter in this moment, empowered by your spirit to continue to proclaim that good news, being confident that you are the one who has instructed us and sent us. So Lord, we'll thank you for that. I pray that this church continues to be a light in a dark world that we continue to uphold the truth of God's word and continue to testify to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Change our lives as a result of it. Motivate us to live our lives for you each and every day. This is my prayer. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.